0: Essentially, you'll hear the stories you won't find on their professional bios. And of course, you'll learn a bit about their practice. Now, let's get to the episode. This episode features a conversation with Mark Diliberti. Mark is a partner in Foley's Milwaukee office and co-chair of the firm's copyright and advertising practice. In this discussion, Mark reflects on growing up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, attending Marquette University, and the University of Chicago Law School. Mark also shares a lot about his experience being a first-generation college and law student. He explains how his parents didn't go to college and how overall he didn't get a lot of guidance as he was trying to figure out navigating higher education. But he also says that a number of happy accidents occurred and that things almost serendipitously worked out for the best in ways that he absolutely wouldn't change, including his first introduction to Foley and Lardner. And also, as co-chair of the copyright and advertising practice, Mark provides a fantastic explanation of what it means to be a trademark, copyright, and licensing attorney, which I very much appreciate as he's the first Foley attorney from this practice group that I've had on the show. And of course, Mark provides just overall great advice about navigating your career. And I think he does a fantastic job at giving insight into Foley's particular culture. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Mark. Mark, welcome to the show. We're going to jump right in and have you give your professional introduction.
1: Well, hi, Alexis. Thanks for having me. This will be fun. Um, So I'm Mark Diliberti. I am a partner at Foley and Lardner. I started my career in law and at Foley in the summer of 1997. Joined the firm in 98 and have happily been here ever since. Foley has changed a lot. Law has changed a lot. The world has changed a lot and not just in the last year. My practice is in the area of trademark copyright and advertising, where I also co-chair that uh, group for the firm. So thanks for having me today, and I look forward to speaking with you.
0: Yes, and we are going to unpack all of that. And also, so in the opening to the show, or maybe it's the trailer episode, I can't remember which one, I say how we explore a number of the things that you wouldn't find on the person's professional bio. But with you, on your bio, it actually says that you are a musician, and active in a number of bands. <laughs> so <laughs> I know we're gonna talk about that too, but I was like, he actually even has it on his bio. It's not the thing that's not written on the bio.
1: <laughs> I, I do, and and you know, part of that is the practice, right? Because we're in the, the copyright practice as well, and we do serve some entertainment industry clients, and if nothing else, it's it's kind of fun for them, and they understand that I'm not looking for a record deal from them, and so everybody's fine. <laughs>
0: All right. We're going to hear more about that, but let's start at the beginning with you. Where are you from? Where did you grow up?
1: So I'm in the Milwaukee office at Foley, and I am from the city of Milwaukee uh, and grew up there. Um, Also went to college at Marquette University in Milwaukee. Interesting and maybe different than some, I don't come from a professional background. So my parents did not go to college. It was something new to our family. So, since 1991, when I left high school, it's been a nonstop adventure <laughs> and a nonstop learning experience. Very rewarding, and I don't mean money. Um, and uh, it, it's been a journey.
0: I suspect we're going to dig into that more, but let me push. You said you're from Milwaukee, so the city of Milwaukee, like Milwaukee proper.
1: Yes, literally. And so, for for folks who know Milwaukee uh, and where what is now American Family Field, what was previously Miller Park and what I know as County Stadium. uh, I grew up about a mile or so from there um, in the city of Milwaukee, kind of um, nestled in this little juncture where a small suburb called West Allis and a small suburb called Wauwatosa kind of interweave in and out with Milwaukee.
0: I guess I describe myself as someone who sort of knows Milwaukee because I did grow up. I grew up in the suburbs of Milwaukee. But my parent, I'm a good two decades removed at this point. So everything's a little bit sketchy for me and a little locked in time circle, like high school for me. <laughs> but but I appreciate you um giving us a little more specifics on that. And I'm curious, looking back, and we'll get to kind of like the high school, college, why law school. But but what sort of kid were you, if you had to describe yourself? If I found you when you were, say, in middle school, what, what were you into?
1: Bookish and shy. I'm an only child, which um, some people say makes total sense when they know I'm me.
0: Also, I'm also an only child, so let's see. We'll compare notes here, but go on.
1: And so I was the kind of kid where my parents, who had grown up in, admittedly, a very different era and with my dad um, up north, my mom in Summer would say, would you get outside and find something to do? And she'd close the door and say, don't come back until dinner. And I would say, okay. And I would take whatever book or books I was reading, climb the tree in our backyard and spend the day up there, which was absolutely not what she was after, but it worked for me.
0: Hey, but that still counts. And I think when you're an only child, at least this is what I've noticed. Is, so I've I have two kids, and they're they're seven and eight. Not, they're seven and nine right now. Mm-hmm. The they're the parents just expected you to kind of rise to their level versus catering to the kids. I don't know if that was your experience at all, but that was definitely my.
1: Yes, for sure. And, and you know, like many Gen Xers, I was a latchkey kid. So, you know, parents were off to work in the morning. I had to figure out how to get myself fed and, and on the bus to school and then do the reverse in the afternoon. So, yeah, you know, it was um, and my wife, Amy, and I try not to be lawnmower or even helicopter parents, but the way that I think generationally, there's been definite shifts in how parents relate to their children. I adore my parents. They're wonderful people. We have a wonderful relationship. But it was a different time and a different dynamic. And, you know, they they both had to work and and didn't have the luxury of having a lot of free time to to sort of lead me by the hand so it was a lot of figuring things out and a lot of scant direction <laughs> and figure it out yourself
0: yeah i can relate to a lot of that my my oldest is now in fourth grade and i look at him and i'm like he's nine he's still so little but when i was in fourth grade i was definitely coming home by myself and home for a couple hours watching tv so what you're saying about being a latchkey kid yes well okay so let's fast forward a bit it's high school you're figuring out college where did you go to college? What was the process like for you deciding that?
1: Yeah. I mean, that, so I don't know if you ever listened to how I built this with Guy Raz, uh, who's yes. the podcaster and the NPR show.
0: Yep, And he frequently. closes
1: every episode with the question, how much of where you are is luck and how much is hard work? And of course, everybody except for one person, uh, Rick Steves says it's a mix. Rick Steves said it was all hard work on Wednesday night's episode. A a lot of where I am, I acknowledge is, is happy accident and capitalizing on opportunities. So, you know, as I said earlier, I don't come from a professional background. My parents are both smart people. They're both accomplished people. They were from a different era where my dad graduated from high school and went enlisted in the army during the Vietnam War. And fortunately for all of us, he went to Europe and he he had kind of a specialized job. And and that's probably why I'm here today uh, and why he's here, still here today. But education was very important to them. And, you know, they were kind of of the start in the mailroom and work your way up generation. It was really important to them that I do well in school, that I learn. And for them, it was, you want to give yourself options. You know, the path that we were on didn't really present a lot of options and didn't present a lot of flexibility. And, you know, we've built a nice life and, and, you know, we've gotten to kind of lower levels of comfortable and and we can take a vacation every year and, and we can have, you know, one used car and another even more used car and and things like that, but we want you to have options. We don't want you to have a career by necessity. We want you to be able to choose what you want to do and, and have a means to make that possible. And education was that means. And so I was just talking to my dad about this the other day. So I have two kids also, a girl and a boy. Our daughter is a 17-year-old junior. Our son is a 15-year-old freshman. So he started high school in the pandemic, which is, you know, in remote, which is a whole different thing. They're great students. They're super easy. They're they're really easy kids. I, I was talking to my dad about how in about seventh grade, they essentially started bribing me to do better in school. Like they had this idea that, I was doing fine, but I was not doing what I could be doing. And, and I said, how did you, and so they started paying me and this was, you know, in the seventies, so it, it'll sound funny now, but it was a dollar and a. And a quarter a B, and nothing for anything else. And I said, how did you come up with this? And he laughed and he said, you know, my boss had three kids. And one of them had some special needs, so they kind of put him aside a little bit for purposes of this. And he's like, one of our kids is a self-starter. They just are internally driven and they're on autopilot and the other kid is equally smart and we had to find a way to do this, so we tried this. And, and so I laughed because, you know, all of the parenting books now, of course, say don't do something like that. But yeah, it must in my, be
0: intrinsic. What intrinsic right. motivation?
1: <laughs> in my case, it worked. And the weird thing was it quickly turned to intrinsic. Um, And so uh, that's a long and winding answer To, to sort of contextualize. Again, there was no college baseline in my family, and I went to a very small parochial high school that was not very close to my house. Again, if I can landmark it in Milwaukee, if you know where either Southridge Mall And or the former American Women's Bowling Congress was my high school was right across the street basically from from Southridge Mall So again for me, it was get on the bus very early take a long bus ride out there it was it was a great school in terms of the education and Being in a smaller environment. We had 400 kids in the whole high school. So, you know a hundred ish a class it allowed me to do things like play sports and be in student government and you know take some ap classes and, and things like that um but it was you know not sophisticated on college placement at that time so you have a family that's not sophisticated on college placement and a high school that's not sophisticated on college placement and a kid who you know i think my parents knew i had potential And so I looked around and I said, well, there's a college um, in Milwaukee called Marquette. There's a college in Milwaukee called MSOE, but I don't want to be an engineer. And there's a college in Milwaukee called um, UWM. So I applied at UWM and at Marquette. Uh, I got in at Marquette and they gave kind of a nice package. And so, you know, with that package and a very small amount that my parents could afford to To help, I basically increased the size of a still relatively small and nurturing environment um, and was able to get through four years of education with um, no college debt, which also was very important to our family because they couldn't really afford to help. I mean, they did. It was wonderful. I'm I don't know how they did it, but between that and and some aid that I could get from Marquette, I was able to get through debt-free. Marquette, even though it's a Jesuit institution, I wasn't Catholic, and it was going from a parochial high school to a Jesuit college, it was really a mind-opener for me. Um, The Jesuits, I didn't know this, but they're kind of known for having an open mind and being intellectually curious. And I really found that uh, in college. And so even though it was, you know, small compared to Madison or a big public university, it was much bigger and it was a real mind opener for me. And and so I think the intrinsic started to take over more and more. Um, I knew I wanted to go to law school. I had absolutely no idea why i think yeah, that's what I, to
0: ask when did that start how did you know you very were early
1: and i think it was one of those things again where um you know and i don't want it to come across wrong but like teachers could tell that i had decent aptitude and so early on they just start to say and i don't know if they still do this i don't think they do as much to be honest but they're like you know, you should be a doctor or you should be a lawyer. That's what they said. STEM was not as big then, really. And so they didn't say you should be an engineer. And I think it just planted a seed early on. And I knew I loved to read, I always had. Um, and I kind of loved ideas. Um, and I planned to go to law school from the time high school was done. I planned the end of high school so that I either wouldn't have to take or could minimize science and math in college, which I now admit to my kids because they're both really strong in math and science, and so I don't have to worry that they're gonna try to avoid it. But you know, at the time, there were a lot of loopholes to take an AP class or take a test and skip a lot of that. So literally, in college, I took, I think, one psychology course, a logic course, and a t- statistic course. And the rest was sort of like broad-based humanities.
0: That was me as well. I smiled as you said that because I was like, me too. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and I majored in criminology right out of the gate because I was like...
0: Oh, I didn't expect you to say that. Yeah. Okay. And again,
1: kind of like unsophisticated, right? So I was thinking, well, what does a lawyer need to take? Well, probably criminology because I would snowboard? get rid you're law school. Yeah, Moscow. crime,
0: obviously. Yeah.
1: I, I took one course and... I, Like, I liked about two weeks of it and the rest I was like, no way. So then I kind of set adrift a little bit and I noticed, or maybe my counselor noticed, you know, you keep taking English classes and you keep taking philosophy classes. You basically have enough that you're going to be able to double major in both and still graduate with what you need. And if you want to go to law school, you might as well just keep doing that because you really seem to love that and you seem to do pretty well in it. So just bear in mind either you have to go to law school and do well or you have to commit with these majors basically to like going down the academic path because it's going to be hard to construct any other career coming out of this without, you know, more schooling or or a lot of work. So that that was kind of the that was kind of the happy accident, right? So I spent college I was working in a hardware store 30 to 40 hours a week during school. I was living at home and commuting, which I would not recommend, and we won't allow our kids to do, even if they wanna go, you know, we we will try to dissuade them, but if they wanted to go somewhere in town, we're gonna push them to campus and say you at least have to live there. I probably couldn't have handled it. You know, I just, again, I didn't have really the framework and financially, I just, I had to work a lot. And that to, was
0: the whole four years. The, the that was four the four years. years yeah. Yeah.
1: So I'm the rare person where in law school I had gotten enough aid and I had gotten comfortable enough with the idea of debt that I was going to have to take jobs only during the summer and not during the year. And so like for me, law school was very hard, but it was also sort of like, I've never had this much free time in in my life.
0: Because <laughs> you're essentially working full time, 30, 40 hours a week while in college is like a full time job.
1: Now, my college is what a mostly what I would have been doing anyway, right? Because it was reading, you know, literature or reading philosophy. So it was a little bit of a scam and that it was, you know, I, I mean, I no longer think it was a scam, but it was it was what i would have been spending a lot of time on and it steered me to look at different texts that i really enjoyed in the process than i than i would have found on my own so i
0: hear you on that and so for law school i know you went to the uni- university of chicago but what was that process like like for you how did you decide on that school
1: so college you know again i lived at home i i went in the same city i grew up in but it did expand the horizons a little bit right So I think I had six schools that I was considering for law school, and this is how naive I was, right? Like, but it was um, very Midwestern, Michigan, Indiana, Iowa, Madison, um, Notre Dame, I think largely based, because I really did like how Marquette functioned and taught, and then Chicago, Um, and, Amy, who I've been married to for coming up on Math on the Fly is Dangerous, 23 years. We were dating then. We both went to Marquette. So we went on a little road trip to like check out the campuses, right? Because the only colleges either of us had ever seen were Marquette. And then if we went to visit friends at Madison, kind of infrequently. And we did the road trips. And the way that we planned out the trip... Chicago was the last stop, right? And we were coming from Michigan, so we came through Gary and then up through the the south side of Chicago, and this would have been in, you know, ninety four, ninety five. And I was like, oh, this is very different than anything I grew up with, you know, like very different. And I don't know if it'll be the right fit, but that's okay, because I don't think that I'll get in anyway. And then, you know, the LSAT results came back and I I did well. I don't remember what I did, but I did well. And I had done well at Marquette. And sure enough, the first school to offer and the school that gave the best package ended up being Chicago of all things. So I'm like, well, Amy, now, you know, I can't turn this down, right? There's no way I can turn this down. I don't know if you've heard of the book, but uh, Robert Persig wrote a book Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Oh, I it, haven't heard of that. So if you if you like philosophy and kind I, of I do. life and academe, it's all kind of wrapped up in that. It's semi autobiographical and it takes place at the University of Chicago, but in the classics program. Um, and so I had come to love the idea of the university through that anyway And so I had a little bit of a soft spot and I was like and I was reading it for one of my final philosophy classes at Marquette at the time and so it was like I Just I have to do this and that's why I do describe a lot of my life as a happy accident and kind of capitalizing and and you know, I think that that ability and a, cultivating an ability to see opportunity is important. I wish I had been able to plan and direct more. You know, I don't know. I don't know that anything would have turned out better in the end. Um, and you know, I, I'm sure you'll want to get to how Foley came about, but I don't want to. Um, I don't want to jump the gun there, but unfortunately you'll see the happy accident theme appear there as well.
0: Well, and we will get there, but I I so appreciate that because I think almost, almost everybody I've had on this podcast has had something similar of, you know, I did it this way. I don't know if I'd recommend other people did it this Mm way, do it this way, but it really worked out for me. And, you know, now that we have law students listening to this, I think it's great to seek advice from practicing lawyers, but you have to also realize that for a lot of them. You know, they didn't necessarily, you know, call the US <laughs> for right. what law school they were going to go to. But I also think your story will resonate with a lot of people. And that, you know, particularly when you know, you're first generation to go to law school or, you know, your parents aren't, you know, super savvy on whatever topic, that, okay, there's a law school over there or there's a college over there. Right. I can, I can be near my, my home. I could still help my parents. I can maybe even keep the same part time job I've had is something that a lot of people now, are still still do and I just think it's nice to hear that it's you know we're not all like, okay, I've looked at every every college in the United States.
1: right? <laughs> Where yeah. should I go? <laughs> yeah, and it's something Amy and I struggle with because our kids are growing up in a very different kind of milieu than we did. And you know that's great. I, I don't begrudge that and I'm glad that we'll be able to provide even more options, you know for them to consider and be realistic. On the other hand, part of a big part of why I appreciate what I do is I have a lot of other experiences to compare it to. I worked a lot of bad jobs in bad conditions. And while I like to think the motivation was intrinsic, I think part of the motivation was spending 60 hours a week in summer in college doing manual labor in a factory that didn't have air conditioning and you know when when we had the first summer i was doing that we had a huge heat wave in the midwest this would have been maybe 93 94 and by the end of that i was i had to be at work at 4 a.m because that was the only way it could be, quote, cool enough that they thought they could reasonably have us do this manual labor, you know, piecework for 10 hours a day in an air-conditioned factory. That and, and being honest, and I'm not judgmental in this, but that and seeing kind of what it did to the people who had been doing it for 20, 30, 10 years, I thought, you know, I have to be very precise. I have to be very fast, and I'm bored out of my mind, and I'm tired, and everything hurts, and I don't want to have to do this for 20 years. If I'm very honest.
0: Yeah, that's tremendous perspective. I remember when I was a junior attorney, and so you know, I went, I went straight through. I my first, in some ways, my first real job was as at a law firm. Like I'd done some other stuff, but like first real job was as a lawyer. But I remember meeting um, an attorney who's maybe five years ahead of me, but he'd worked in construction for a number of years before going to law school. And he was now at a point in his career where he was he was billing a lot. Like he was a machine. And so I'm not saying that people should bill as much as this individual, but partly it was his perspective because he I remember him saying, no matter how hard my day was today, I'm in air conditioning. I don't have shards from... Um, like insulation in my hand, fiberglass embedded in my hands. Like it's really not that bad of a day, (laughs) regardless of how quote unquote hard today was. And he just had a tremendous amount of perspective, which also totally fueled his work ethic, frankly. So I definitely hear you when you say that. Well, I'm curious if you could say a few words about your law school experience, but then yeah, segue to, to Foley and Lardner and tell us about that
1: so law school was another mind expander you know i you know i had kind of a small upbringing which i it's not a criticism it's just the way it was you know our, our our horizons were smaller we were happy we we enjoyed what we did but you know i move into this pool where it's primarily people from the coasts or from abroad who are at chicago um and you know i would look at bios or or you know the the lookbook or whatever it was called and i would just be i was pretty sure i was not going to make it you know i would look at credentials and where people went to high school or to where they went to college and you know there would be something about their family and it became very clear to me early on even in hearing people talk like this is a different level with people who are speaking a language Not the professors, the students that I don't fully understand and they have a context that I will need, but I don't have. Um, And it was very daunting. And I remember. um, When I was there, you know, every law school has the professor everyone's afraid of. Right. The old school, Socratic. So. I don't I didn't think to look and see if he's still there or even alive. He was a little older when I was there. And this was the mid 90s. It was Professor Helmholtz who taught property, whose nickname was the hammer. And he earned it. You know, he he was extremely Socratic. And if you weren't prepared, he would let you know, you um, And so he called on me, and I had done the reading, and I had tried to understand it, and I, you know, fumbled something out that got me a light tap instead of a full hammer. And then after class, and this was like one of the first days, uh, a tall, skinny guy with glasses pulled me aside, and he said, I was so happy when I heard you start talking because I knew immediately there was someone else here who was from the Midwest and probably from Wisconsin who didn't have this background and Adam and I, and he came from a professional background. His family had a, a successful company. He had gone to Yale for college and played golf on the golf team and, but super nice guy, super down to earth. We, we became very good friends and that sort of helped to calm me down. And then, you know, having a diversity available that wasn't, it just, It wasn't excluded from my upbringing intentionally. It just, it wasn't really part of it. Like we had, you know, I come from a, my mom's family is a large German Lutheran family and my dad's family is a large Italian Catholic family. And there's enough people in that circle that we couldn't even keep up with our family, let alone, you know, expand much beyond that. So, you know, there was not a lot of, um, there was not a lot of diversity in any of the categories that we kind of think of now. And then all of a sudden at Chicago, there was. And for me, it was great. You know, one of my early friends is a guy from who grew up, who he's white. He grew up in Harlem. His dad was an Episcopal minister who had a parish there and in the Dominican Republic as kind of like a, a, you know, a mission. Um, And so Tom spoke fluent Spanish. He had grown up with African Americans and with Dominicans, he was very comfortable with diversity and he kind of brought me along for the ride because it was new to me. And it was not, you know, I wasn't afraid of it. I wasn't against it. It just, it was new. and that was one of my favorite parts even then about school is I'm meeting people who are different from what I've had before, not just in terms of they're wealthier and their families are professional and more successful. But, you know, ethnic diversity, LGBTQ, yep. you know, one of my well, early it's friends. Everything. It's geography.
0: Yeah. It's ev- it's literally yeah. everything. It sounds like. And, and yeah. you
1: have to kind of think about context, too. And I don't know, you know how old you are. But again, this is like early to mid 90s. One of my early friends, I won't share his name. And he was out then after that, but maybe six months into hanging out, he was like, Hey, you know, I feel like I have to tell you so and so is not just my roommate. And maybe this is still the case now, but he was scared to tell me. And it was a very vulnerable moment for him. I don't know anymore culturally. I think we've come a long way, especially in the last there was just a story on NPR about how amazingly quickly across almost all political spectra even we've come to, you know, think very differently about uh, particularly LG, at least. But in the nineties it was a very vulnerable moment and it was a very like it was very moving for him to do that. And you know, it was like one of those inflection points in your life. And I was like, I, again, I won't share his name, but I was like, I'm really glad you trusted me to tell me. It, it doesn't, like, it doesn't change anything other than, you know, I, I'm glad to know you in a different way. Yeah. I guess. now I
0: know more of who you are. But- um,
1: and, and, you know, and I talk about, we talk about this with our kids, you know, I think Amy and I are, are very committed to diversity and you know I can talk about why I think that's been important in in my practice and in my group if that helps later on but you know we still come from a slightly different framework so we may you know and, and we when we're trying to remember people we may you know say is is that this kid and if we're talking about a, like a, a diversity category, our kids have not even registered it. It's just not how they think about people or the world. And it's hard to see, you know, it's it's an amazing, we have a lot of work to do as this summer showed us, you know, and I've learned a lot from what happened this summer, even about myself and, and my framework. One of my personal and professional struggles is figuring out how to talk about issues like this effectively, because I I feel like I'm walking a line where I don't share some of those characteristics and I need to talk about them to learn more and to understand people's framework. But I don't know always how to be sensitive and and um, and uh, affirming and doing that. And so, you know, we're, we're kind of at a still at a strange point where sometimes people's Uh, hang ups can get in the way. And sometimes the way that people talk about things is not productive. And, you know, we have a lot of work to do to kind of work through that, I think.
0: Yep. Well, you've said so much great stuff. And just even reflecting back on a few minutes ago, talking about going to the University of Chicago and that really expanding your horizons. I think a lot of people have that experience in college, even if they did grow up in an environment which was maybe diverse in in some way that would be different from what you'd think of as the majority. I know for me, yeah, I grew up in Glendale, Wisconsin. (laughs) My school was predominantly white. The kids, the black kids in my school were generally bust in from the city of Milwaukee. Uh, And for me, going to college in Washington, D.C. and literally just knowing people from Pennsylvania or New Jersey or New York, I'd probably gone my whole life without knowing anybody from that part of the country Um, and seeing more sort of like recent immigrants to the U.S. who settled on the coast and you don't see as frequently in um the Midwest and and in so many different dynamics, whether it be geographically having the students from abroad. Like I was that just didn't really happen a ton where, where I grew up. So I can see that. And then I'm gonna quickly touch on because this is a director of diversity part of me in case listeners are wondering, I think so many people have a similar mindset to what you do. And there is this like embracing things, learning things, being far more progressive than whether it be family or where you live or whatever. But I think ultimately we are in this moment where for a while it was people felt progressive if they were like, hey, I'd love to learn about you. Can you tell me about you? <laughs> now, we're in this, now we're in this moment of it's fantastic to want to know about others, but we have so much information and we definitely don't want to put the onus on the person right. who in some way is in the minority to teach. And so there are so many resources, books, the internet, all that. But when you do have um, an interpersonal opportunity. So you're just talking to someone else. I still think, and others may disagree with me that when you're coming from a super sincere place, because we can literally tell, you can tell by someone's vibe if they're being sincere or performative or whatever, but that I'm not as familiar with X culture, X community, X experience. I would love to know more. If, if it'd be okay for me to ask you some questions sometime, let me know. Totally understand if you you know prefer not to. And then seeing what the person says, but still but but asking versus because I think a lot of underrepresented minorities have had the experience of someone feeling entitled to them teaching them because somehow as the minority you should Teach others, and I think that's what we're becoming more aware of is not the dynamic. Um, but I'm going to push you forward, Mark, because we have to hear about Foley and Lardner, and I have to hear about your practice, and I have to hear about your band. And if I don't do those three things in our remaining time, I will feel like a giant failure. So let's <laughs> start at Foley, <laughs> like, and maybe trademark as well. I don't know, but yeah, yeah, so, take me where we should go.
1: So, so the happy accident theme continues. I knew with absolute certainty that I needed to get out of Milwaukee when I practiced and I wanted to get to a big firm and I wanted it to be preferably on a coast. Amy, who was finishing up a master's program, she was gonna be done with that one year before I was done with law school said, I really wanna be in Milwaukee. So our compromise was I can apply to all of these firms. I will also apply to Foley in Milwaukee and I will you know, not sandbag that process. If I get Foley, Milwaukee, we'll go there and we'll see how it goes. If I don't, then we go elsewhere. So as with many things in life in life, Amy was wise beyond her years. And in retrospect, where I ended up was exactly right for me for a a lot of reasons. Um, a, a lot of reasons, but you know, it certainly was not guaranteed when, when I was in law school. So again, this would have been 97 would have been my, yeah, my second summer. The way that firms ran programs was you'd spend half the summer in one practice and you would do only work for that practice. And then you would do half the summer in the other practice. And so when I set up my interviews with Foley, just like I did with everyone else, I told them I, I want to do real estate or environmental. And that's where they put me. And how I came up with those was a friend of Amy's in her master's PT program said, hey, there's this great program at this firm called Foley and Lardner, where they will take you as a summer secretary, they'll pay you pretty well, and you know you, you do secretarial work so that their secretaries can go on vacation in the summer. Do you think Mark would be interested? I was so unsophisticated and clueless in retrospect, I had never even set foot in a law firm. And I was in law school, right? I had never been in a lawyer's office. So you want to talk happy accidents, I guess, backing further up between college and law school, I was in that program with her.
0: Wow, okay.
1: (laughs) And the two practices that I spent most of my time in you want to take a guess, real estate with uh, Sarah Jelensic and uh, Larry Bonney and um, Ben who are all still at Foley and I thought they were wonderful and that's how I picked that and then environmental I had worked with um, Linda Benfield and with uh, Mike Flanagan and Bruce Keyes and they were great to me and so those those were the that's how I picked those two practices so you know it It really like it's it's a little bit of a chain of happenstance to a degree that I'm slightly embarrassed about. But so fast forward to my summer, I started environmental and I want to stress this. I loved the people in that practice. I loved them like the way that they practice law and the way that they make it livable is amazing. They're truly like it's special. I did, I think, a four-week project on lead paint regulation at the federal, state, county, and local level. And at the end of that, if I ever had to think about environmental law again, I was going to do something else. Um, By a weird accident, when I came in to interview for the summer spot, I, they looked at my my resume and they said, you know, we just hired two new partners in trademarks. Would you consider adding, essentially, you know, you've done the full day. Would you consider adding an evening and interviewing with six people in that group? And well, like, what am I going to say? You know, right? Sure. Yeah. Yeah, so, absolutely. <laughs> so I did. But I really liked how they described the practice in part because it allowed me to defer a decision the fundamental decision that that law students have to make early is, am I a transactional lawyer or am I a litigator? As they didn't explain it exactly this way, but in talking about the practice, I could tell they were, I didn't have a language to express it, but they were subject matter experts and they did transactions and they did counseling and they did litigation. So I said, well, let me let me do that. So I, I spent the, the second half of my summer there. I liked the people almost equally well, and I liked the work a lot more. Um, So, you know, again, like if someone hadn't looked really closely at the resume and for some reason decided that an English major might be someone that's good to have in a trademark practice, I, you know, I might be like a real estate tycoon right now.
0: Wow. And you're the first, I think, copyright advertising trademark attorney at Foley that I've had on the podcast. If you could just say, because I'm thinking about a law student listening who's not quite certain what that area is. So I don't know if you have like the two to three minute explanation of what your day-to-day practice entails, but that would be great.
1: I do. So let me give you our, our quick elevator speech. So trademark, that's brand names, you know, whatever it is, Pepsi, Google, you know, we see them all day, every day. And so what we do is we help clients decide, okay, what's the risk return profile for a new name that we want to look at. We can do some searching to see what the prior landscape looks like and help them navigate that both in the U S and globally to say, okay, we love this name. Does it have the right risk return profile? Once they get to yes on that, then we help them protect it. We file the trademarks in the United States, We um, partner with a global network of firms to register the names, you know, the names wherever they need to protect them. And then we get them through that process and we enforce and defend the names coming through that. And when they need to license it to someone else or or work a deal, we do that. So that's the trademark side. Um, The advertising side is really, you know, okay, what can I say about my products? What can I say about my competitors products? What kind of claims can I make about performance or about, you know, green or any number of things. So that's really the advertising side. How do we comply with FTC and how do we not run afoul of competitors? And then copyright is really content. You know, it could be for a lot of our clients it's in the software space. So it's how do you protect the expression of ideas? Um, and what content from others can we use and, and how? And, you know, that, that springs up in a lot of ways. We, we A lot of our counseling is around social now. And, you know, we have a TikTok channel or we're an aggregator. What does that mean for taking content that has music and letting it flow through the stream? And how does the dynamic change? When we're a business and a lot of the, the content is personal and, and so that's where a lot of that counseling has gone. So that's kind of the, that's how to understand the three parts of that name and what they mean in reality. When I'm talking to law students who are interested, I'm, I'm very honest, it's a steep learning curve, right? Because you have to be a subject matter expert in all of those areas. You can't just focus either on disputes and sharpening those skills or on agreements and sharpening those skills. You have to be working on both of those and you have to be counseling clients, which requires experience and and judgment. The flip side is we do a lot of small projects. We do some big projects, but a lot of small projects. So as a new lawyer, you're going to get a lot of responsibility, probably more than you want. You're going to get a lot of that elusive direct client contact that everyone wants because we can't, you know, we don't have 10,000 hour projects that span three years. We do, if you think about a client's trademark portfolio overall, but that's a lot of little transactions. And so we need to give people a framework and some guidance and oversight, and then we need them to, you know, operate like professionals right out of the gate while they're learning. And so it's, you know, it's it fits a personality that's very curious, that wants to be kind of out front with clients early on, which not everyone does. And I understand that. And, and in retrospect, it really pushed me out of my comfort zone to get there. Um, but it's a very rewarding practice in that you can dive deep into a lot of things and you're, you get to keep a lot of skills sharp and developing all along the way.
0: You just anticipated a bunch of my questions for the law students listening. I'm sorry. They probably wish I could ask you 20 more questions about everything you just said, but I will, I will leave it there. But I think you just gave a fantastic overview. And one of my final questions as we come to close for you is, okay, so when does this band thing happen? Because you just walk through, you know, most of your life, you never said, and then I started learning guitar or some point in law school I joined a band, but I know you've been in at least one of your bands for the past 20 years. So you, you have to give me a few minutes about that.
1: Sure, so happy accident will again come up, it's a theme. But so I I said I went to a parochial school. I grew up in a, a, a sort of German Lutheran milieu. That meant you go to church on Sunday, That meant you go to chapel three times a week as part of your parochial school. And that meant you sing in the choir. So I grew up singing in choir. um, And my mom was a violist in not the symphony orchestra, but like the thing that's kind of like two rungs below that, like community orchestras. So very high quality. My earliest conscious memories of my parents as people not just as parents are of them. And it was incense, lighting incense, pulling out a binder and pulling out their two gut string guitars and singing and playing together, you know, like they were folkies. So Gordon Lightfoot and Peter, Paul and Mary and Simon and Garfunkel. And then they, they gave me access to their record player and their record collection. And so I grew up, you know, spinning their Elvis and Simon and Garfunkel and Beatles records. And I, you know, I, the music bug took me early on. We used to have, before streaming, we had these things called cassettes and CDs. And there were these clubs where you could pay a penny and get 10 CDs or 10 discs or tapes. Little did I know I was signing my parents up for an ongoing you know, charge, which was another thing. But I had a huge music collection. I did I, it.
0: I did it too. You yeah. and then I got a job to CDs. pay them back,
1: right? So <laughs> I wore out all kinds of music about my maybe fifth or sixth year in at Foley, and, and I played violin for 15 years. I hated every minute of it. I faked reading music. I would just learn things by ear, and so it was a constant tension between my mom and my teacher and me, but it was good training for later on, and she appreciates now how I use it. I knew there was a messenger in Milwaukee who was an interesting guy. He wrote for the Shepherd Express, which I don't know if you know Milwaukee well enough, but it's like an independent paper.
0: It rings a bell. Yep, it rings a bell. I
1: knew we played in bands and I knew I was like, I needed something. I needed something other than work. Um, and the, the great time I was spending with Amy, like I needed something for me. So I said, hey, like, can you just guide me in playing? Like, how, how could I start to play guitar? And he's like, OK, you know, go here, grab this. And then about two months later, he go he emails or sees me in the hall and he goes, "Well, did you do it?" And I said, "Yeah." And I said, "I'm like trying to learn." He's like, "Okay, I play in this band. We happen to rehearse two blocks from your house. Do you want to just come sometime?" And I was like, "Blame like." He's like, "No, no, it'll be fine." So I went, and they were so kind and they were so generous. And they I I to this day, when I ask him, I'm like, why did you do that? And he can't really explain it except he likes chaos. So that that was the explanation. And they were so kind and so generous. And they let me kind of like play in the background. And then about a year later, they stuck a mic in front of me and they're like, let's see if you can sing. And then it just, you know, you do that and then you start making connections. We played a benefit for the like the local legal aid clinic, which was a battle of the bands and we lost the band with the judge in it one not just because it was the judge but because they were far and away better but there was another band of people my age so that project was like old country old honky tonk there was a band my age who was doing like kind of like 80s and 90s covers things and we really hit it off and they kind of said hey do you want to that project is ending would you be interested in forming a new project so we did a, a new wave post-punk cover band for seven years we you know it was great fun we did we raised a lot of money for childhood cancer because one of the guys his daughter's friend had unfortunately passed away from a like rare and unresearched form of of brain cancer and so they started a chapter for the research organization and so we played a bunch of shows at the hilton where you know they would raise 70 grand in a night for the cause and it would all go there and then i found floor model who's been around for 20 years because my neighbor at the other end of the block who is a chef or at least was before covid closed to all the restaurants he was like, Hey, we've been a three piece forever. And I've I've seen your country band and I've seen your eighties band. And I think, you know, I think you'd be a good fit and we, we get along. So can you show up? And again, they were like incredibly generous. You know, I had to learn, they had probably 60, 70 original songs, no trained musicians. So I had to just kind of learn by ear and, and fit in, but we get along really well, you know, creatively, we, we fit together really well. We have kind of a, you know, punk rock has a long and storied progressive political slant and we fit Mm -hmm. well together that way.
0: And you recently recorded a new album. Is that because I, so I pulled you up on Spotify and I was just listening and I think it was the latest album.
1: Yeah, we did. So we, they had probably half the album written when I joined and some of the songs just weren't like The 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 main writer to date is a second grade teacher who it's in one of the songs. If you listen to the song Green Blah, he had an upbringing very similar to me. He went to college. He essentially flunked out very early and wasted all his student loan money on things that young college students can do. So then he joined the army. went over to Germany, did a couple of tours, came back, used the GI bill to get his education degree. And he's been a central city second grade teacher ever since he's this very like big personality, creative, super carry, like to, you know, to, to teach 20 years in MPS, you know, second grade, it takes a special kind of personality. Um, super creative and he's like all this time like there were things i could hear but i didn't know how to express them and for some somehow like it's like you knew what i was hearing so that that's kind of the connection we had and so we finished those songs and then we wrote some together we played some bigger shows that paid us some more money and that gave us the funding to go to go into a proper record studio now this is not like you know where the rolling stones go this is you know a basement and an office building that's nicely set up and appointed, but it's like time is money. Every second counts. We're recording it as we're, we started recording it as the world is starting to get reports of, Hey, there's something going on in China. We finished recording the date the night before Wisconsin's safe at home order first went into effect. And at that time, nobody wore masks. But we were obsessively cleaning everything. So we'd get to the studio and the engineer who's a great guy, super musician. He he is like the unofficial fourth member of the Violent Femmes, if you're familiar with that group. He's the guy who would tour with them all, all the time and like play all the parts that the three of them were on the record, but the three of them couldn't be playing, you know, while they were doing their thing. You know, he would be scrubbing every microphone down and every surface that we were gonna touch. And of course, there we are singing in a room together unmasked and um, you know but knock wood of the four of us no one's gotten covid we've been very locked down and anyway we finished recording it that night and then it was just you know the engineer does his thing and you know i've learned more about my practice by doing this too because the engineer does it then they finish then mm-hmm. they send it to someone who does something called mastering which is yeah, you
0: could make it right that. for the
1: different streaming formats and, and sound wow. right and and we pushed it out and you know we knew that there's a small but dedicated original music scene in milwaukee and we knew that the people that were in that really were responding to the material live because we had been playing it live for a, a year and a half or whatever and then it landed on the radio you know what radio local college radio but it did really well like the first or second week it came out it was number one at our local college station and they were really responding to it um and then it hit like the national college radio scene all of this adds up to we're all bmi members we've literally made not a cent (laughs) but you know like a couple weeks after the album dropped we we looked and it was like you know mid 200s for National College Radio. And it's like, oh, there's Dinosaur Jr. next to us, and there's Neil Young, and there's Bob Dylan's new record. And it was like, you know, it's meant nothing monetarily, but it's, you know, and to put art out, which I guess it is in a sense, you have to not care what people think about it Mm -hmm. in a way. But it was sort of nice to see people responding to it. Yeah, there's
0: there's some validation there. And I just think that's fantastic because people are multifaceted and what I love about this podcast as a platform is there's a little bit of an opportunity to show people that so yes you are co-chair of the copyright and advertising practice at Foley and you know a, a more senior partner but you also have a full life and many other things including being in this in this band and I just think that's great and so for people who didn't catch it it's named, the, the band is named Floor Model. I was able to find them very easily on Spotify. So check that out. But with that, I want to ask you my final two questions, which is one, is there anything you wanted to to touch on or highlight you haven't had an opportunity to? And then lastly, what's your advice to somebody contemplating a legal career or perhaps to junior lawyers? What's your What are your words of wisdom to them?
1: So um, yeah, I mean, I can touch on both real quick. So I work a lot with and through associates in my practice if i'm honest that's what probably keeps me in the big firm platform if i had to just like do it all myself i'd probably be doing something else now but i really like the teaching aspect i really like the working in teams i really like working with diverse people because i learn a lot and because we i I don't mean to sound transactional but we do provide a better product to clients when we have a lot of perspectives in play. I've seen that in action, but the teaching and the trying to figure out how to give people guideposts, but let them be their own lawyer and equip them to do what they wanna do and ultimately equip them to grow into peers instead of you know people who kind of like in theory report to me, that's the part that's really fun. It's a hard career and it's getting harder. I think, and I'm very biased, but I have a decent baseline now, Foley is not likely to be the firm where you will make the most money. I don't think we make any secret of that. For anyone and for my background, the amount of money is is eye-popping, but it's not the most money you can make in a law firm, but in a law firm platform. But I think Foley is, you know, we're operating in a very competitive industry at a very kind of top of the pinnacle section of that industry, all of that creates a lot of structural challenges. We have to work very hard. We have to charge rates that, that are high, uh, or at least that look high. We have to constantly develop our, or demonstrate our value to clients and we're constantly selling and competing against other people that our clients have access to, that creates a lot of structural pressures and it creates a lot of expectations. What I think Foley is very good about is not adding anything extra to that. Mm -hmm. Within that construct, which is just part of the deal, it's like we care about people. We're not doing things to make it worse than it needs to be. But you, what I tell people is, you have to love this. It has to really satisfy something other than money. Because if it's just money, it's it maybe it's enough, but it, it probably isn't enough. And so you have to constantly be testing: do, do I still love this? And we have to get better as a firm and a profession about giving a path for people to test that honestly, and you know, not have it be a binary. People leave because they're not performing well. Because maybe they are, maybe they aren't, and maybe they aren't because they don't really love this, but we haven't given them a framework where they can talk about that and feel like it won't have consequences or like, or where they just understand that other things are possible and that you're not failing if this isn't what's for you. You know, it is the trite pie eating contest where the prize is much, much more pie. And that, that maybe that's not for everyone. You know i was just talking to a recruit about this like when i worked in the factory or when i worked at the hardware store or when i worked at mcdonald's if i had a day off about halfway through it i would be thinking oh you know what i have to go back to work tomorrow i have not and i this is true i have not had that feeling here i've had a lot of difficult times i've had a lot of times where i struggled where I didn't think I could do it, where I failed and had to pick myself up, but I never had that dread in the pit of my stomach of, oh, no, I have to go to work. And I think that's important. Um, The work has to be rewarding, and there's a lot of reasons that it is. We work with really interesting clients who have really interesting issues that don't have very clear solutions most of the time. If they did, they wouldn't be coming outside of themselves or to let alone to a firm like us that makes the work really fascinating. We hire really smart people who work really hard and that makes getting to solutions more fun. And it makes just the the day to day more fun. I mean, you know, I, I try to do a lot of teams meetings instead of email or calls. We're missing a big part of what makes Foley great over the last year because most of us are working from home and that's fine. And and there's no way to avoid that. But, you know, I think Foley is good about creating a platform where we have the high expectations and we have the interesting work and we hold people accountable, but we're trying to develop them. We're not practicing by gotcha. We're not trying to weed people out. Even if you look at us structurally, we're not a leveraged firm. We're just not. And that causes us, you know, even if we weren't all virtuous like we are, it causes us to relate to associates differently. But also, we're just not doing it. You know, we're, we're trying to solve problems for clients. We're more and more and more trying to do it as teams, which I think is very rewarding. And so that's kind of the intrinsic side that, that helps with practicing and what is a very difficult, demanding and sometimes overwhelming environment.
0: You just said some fantastic things about my favorite topics, which are professional alignment, professional curios- curiosity, and professional passion. And I just think those are really wise words. And I just have to say, Mark, thank you. Thank you so much for being on the, the podcast. And if a listener has a question or wants to reach out to you, can they find you on Foley's website and send you an email?
1: Oh, yeah, that would be great. I, I am a different person than the shy, introverted, um, only child that I was many years ago. And now I actually like uh, interacting with people. <laughs> So this has been an absolute pleasure for me. Um, I I talk a lot. So thank you for being patient. And uh, I, I really enjoyed getting to know you a little more.
0: Oh, Thank you so much, Mark. Thank you for listening to The Path and the Practice. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and join us again next time. And if you did enjoy it, please share it, subscribe, and leave us a review as your feedback on the podcast is important to us. Also, please note that this podcast may be considered attorney advertising and is made available by Foley & Lardner LLP for informational purposes only. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship. Any opinions expressed herein do not necessarily reflect the views of Foley & Lardner LLP, its partners or its clients. Additionally, this podcast is not meant to convey the firm's legal position on behalf of any client, nor is it intended to convey specific legal advice.